Welcome to the Trinity Grace Church Podcast. Trinity Grace is a community helping New Yorkers embody the love of Christ for the good of our neighbors. We have two services on Sunday mornings, 9.30 a.m. and 11 a.m. at General Seminary in the Chapel of the Good Shepherd. We would love for you to join us. For more information, go to tgcdowntown.com. May you be filled with curiosity, grace, and peace as we listen and learn together through this sacred text. Matthew 26, 26 through 30. While they were eating, Jesus took bread. And when he had given thanks, he broke it and gave it to his disciples, saying, Take and eat this. It's my body. Then he took the cup and gave thanks and gave it to them, saying, Drink from it, all of you. For this is my blood of the new covenant, which is shed for the many of remissions of my sins. But I say to you, I will not drink of this fruit of the vine from now on until that day when I drink it new with you in my Father's kingdom. When they had sung a hymn, they went out to the Mount of Olives. The Gospel of our Lord. God, we thank you for this moment that we share together. We pray that it would create something new in us, uh, that our imaginations would light up, that our hearts would warm and thaw, that our minds would be engaged and teased into new trails to explore this week. We pray that by your spirit, we would be shaped in the way of love, the love that we see when we look and remember the story of Christ. We pray all of this in the name of the Father, and of the Son, and of the Holy Spirit. Amen. So this morning, uh, I'd like to continue this exploration of our identity as a church. And I'll do a little reminders, uh, a little bit of reminding at the beginning of the ground that we've covered. And if you've missed along the way, um, we invite you to go back to the podcast and check out some of these, uh, these messages because uh, they are sort of laying out for us. Uh, who we, we are and who we desire to become as a church. Um, so we've, we've talked about our motive and our mission. First of all, our motive is life. Jesus said, I've come that you would have life and that you'd have it to the full. And anything we do, if it's not connected to life, it just becomes arbitrary, it becomes disconnected to the why, and it becomes form without spirit. It becomes uh, just going through the motions without anything uh, attached to it that is uh, dynamic and, and uh, connected. Um, and so life is the point, but our what is love? And I'll just share with you our mission statement, um, which is this, to help New Yorkers embody the love of Christ for the good of our neighbors. To embody the love of Christ for the good of our neighbors. And uh, this is, all, all this is super on purpose, but the, uh, which is a really smart way to talk about things. But um, the love is the point. Love is our what. Life is our why. Love is our what. And then we've explored our core values. Um, we have several that, that all, uh, we've explored together. Um, the first is unity. The second, I think these will be on the wall. Christina, can we get these? Yeah. Unity, diversity, generosity, curiosity, and creativity. Um, these are the, the sort of core things that ground us as, as stuff gets hard, as relationships become hard. 
Um, when we face challenges or when we face chaos in our world and as a community, these are the things we double down on. These are the things we mind, remind ourselves are important. This in some way, these are our processes for dealing with the challenges that come with being in a, a faith community together. Um, and we've explored these together. I encourage you to go back and look at the, the podcast um, or listen to it. The next thing is our distinctives. And we have four. Um, we've looked at two last week, what it means that we're a biblical community, what it means we're a creedal community. And then David, this last week, was like, hey, you should really just focus on one at a time um, because I've been trying to pair these together. And what it's resulted in is like 40-minute sermons, which is not where the zone we want to be in. Um, and especially in light of today's theme, which is sacramental, it's definitely not the zone we want to be in. So I'm just going to focus on sacramental today and, uh, and slow it down a bit. Um, so today we're asking the question, what does it mean to be sacramental as a community? And I want to begin by just identifying the problem, which is we live and experience a great split, a great split. And this is a split that uh, in some ways has its roots in the origins of human civilization. But for us who live in the modern era, there is a profound sense in which our lives have been torn apart by a movement called the Enlightenment. And listen, you're not going to get me hating on the Enlightenment. Like, it, to me, there are, there are beauty and, and chaos to all of these movements in, in human history. Um, but the Enlightenment was a force in human history. The Enlightenment, of course, was an era where we discovered the power of reason. And we, so to speak, were able to reach out into the chaos of a, an untamed world and use our brains to bring order and to shape it and mold it, mold it in ways that were previously unimaginable. We have been to the moon. We have been all around our, we've been sent things all around our solar system. And we've explored the universe in ways that were unimaginable. And there's good reason that, that the, the enlightenment took root. I mean, I don't think any of us want to go back to a world that doesn't have penicillin. Right? Like, we don't want to go to a back to a world probably, that doesn't have air conditioning. We certainly don't want to go back to a world, I don't think, that doesn't have the internet, although I, we probably could do without social media. There are so many gifts that come from the enlightenment and the technological revolution that followed, but there were great splits. And I, I don't want to go too far or too deep into this, but I do want to take a cursory glance at some of the, the ways our lives are being torn apart just by this era in which we live, by being present now. With industrialization, there were relational splits. So because of human technology, we could make things at a scale before that were, it was unimaginable. But in order to do that, we had to get a bunch of bodies together to do that work. And in order to get a bunch of bodies together to produce at that scale, we had to rip them out of their family context, of their cultural context, from their small towns. And we had to place them together. And with industrialization, there was a new normal of how we think about life. All of a sudden, it wasn't our family, it wasn't our culture or our tradition or our religion that was our center point. It was our work. And this was a big shift in our imagination. Today, you live in New York City probably because of your work. That's what brought you here more than likely. An aspiration, a new job, an opportunity, and you're here. But that comes at a cost. And I'm not here to hate on the reality. We just need to acknowledge what is this reality that we need to reckon with. So there was a relational split 
introduced into Western culture. Uh, with urbanization, we had a split with our environment. Urbanization, of course, is the result in many ways of industrialization. We need a bunch of bodies together to produce a lot of stuff. And so how do we create spaces where many people can live together with density? This was the, the core of the urban idea. And so we get all these people living together, sharing life. And what does it do? Uh, one of the things I love about this city is also a curse as well, which is we have this beautiful concrete shooting up out of the ground all around us in ways that are mesmerizing and inspire us in profound ways. And yet, there's something off about the scale of our experience with the created world. Like we can walk around on any given New York beautiful day and we will see patches of green grass, yes. We might see a tree or two or 10. But in terms of scale, every piece of nature is dwarfed by the hands of human creativity. And while it's cool and it's beautiful and it is inspiring, we lose connection with the overwhelming beauty and scope of the natural world. We lose our sense of connection. And that's why it's important to reconnect at times, to get out of the city, to reconnect with the scale. Like we are not the center. <laughs> we are a very small part of a large, large, large universe. And at the same time, there are other splits created with our environment. If you think about our trash, like have you been to the place where your trash is taken? Have you seen it? Have you smelled it? Have you, I don't want to go much further into that, but I haven't. I mean, I've watched a documentary or two and I've heard people talk about it, but my sense of connection with that emotionally, viscerally is very minimal. The shirt I'm wearing today, I, you know, really, I don't know. I should know. I don't know. I'm, I'm uh, looking at my friend who's, who pricks my conscience on a regular basis and she loves that. Um, I'm being ironic. She doesn't. Um, but maybe she does. I don't know. I'm, I'll let her be the judge of that. But let me just say my shirt. That's what I'm talking about. Uh, this is made of cotton, and I don't know where the cotton came from. I don't know where it was sourced. I don't know who harvested it. I don't know who made this shirt. I'm not connected in a meaningful way to it. And that's true for so much of the things that we consume. We just, it just shows up, you know, via Amazon Prime at our doorstep now. And we don't know always the story of where it's coming from. And our connection to the environment has split apart. There are cultural splits through globalization. Um, we are more connected than ever. We're more aware of each other's cultures than ever. And there are these systems and forces that sort of compress human culture into this least common denominator that's cool because we connected. I mean, we all can recognize McDonald's or pop, pop uh, uh, culture or maybe even movies, and that might be a global connection point. But there's so much lost about cultural heritage from people all around the world through this force of globalization. We've been split from our pasts. I was just talking to my grandmother this week, and I was uh, talking about her, her, her dad. And her dad, she's, her family was from, immigrated from Poland. Um, so they have Polish heritage. And her dad made an explicit decision not to pass on the Polish language, not to pass on, pass on Polish customs or rituals. He wanted a clean break with his, his cultural past and wanted a new slate, an American slate. And his sisters were always like hounding him, like, why are you not teaching them the language? Why are you not teaching them the songs? Why are you not teaching them the stories? And he would be like, no, we're Americans now. And we are going to teach them what it means to be American. And so what we have in, in globalization and even like national stories is this compression of diverse cultures into this least common denominator where we lose connection with our culture, with our heritage. 
And so there are all these splits. There's identity splits because of consumerism. Right now, more than any other time in human history, how we think about ourselves is shaped by what we buy, what we consume. It's no longer our families of origin, our family culture, or our religion, or our traditions, these institutions that used to make life have meaning and significance and stability. Now it's the shirts that we wear and the clothing that we present and the, and the brands that we curate through social media. And listen, there's free, freedom there. There's a lot of like, creativity involved in that. It can be exhilarating at times, but it can also feel overwhelming. It can be paralyzing. We can feel lost, like we're trying to piece together an identity out of this random mix of things, and we wonder, what are we anchored in? What are we tethered to? These splits have damaged us. And when it comes to the church, the church has also faced splits, and that's what the sacramental distinctive is trying to address. It's trying to heal the splits of our lives. In the church, these splits have taken root in different ways, but the main way in the Protestant world, which I'm imagining a lot of you come from a Protestant background. We're an interdenominational church. We have people who have Catholic backgrounds, Episcopal backgrounds, uh, Baptist backgrounds, Presbyterian backgrounds, Methodist backgrounds, Holiness, Pentecostal backgrounds, third wave charismatic movements, Baptist, I mean, you name it, people in our community have that story. And I love the diversity of that. But in the Protestant world, the imagination generally and the way it mode of operation treats each other like we're brains on a stick. We, we think of what it means to do spirituality. We think of what it means to follow Jesus. We think about what it means to be a successful church through the lens of let's get a message into a brain and let's do it in whatever way possible. I uh, was recently had a series of, well, I've had two stories I want to tell you. One was recent, one was early in my life. The recent story was I was uh, at a football game, and I had a chance to meet uh, sort of a prominent person connected with the game. And in meeting this person, the first question upon learning what I do, uh, there was three questions. First was, how big a church you got? And, you know, I was like, well, it's, it's very, like, it's very modest, you know, a little community church in New York. Um, and then the next question, well, how's the preaching? And he's asking me. So it's like, uh, it's good. It's decent. I think it's, it's I like, yeah, I stand by it. Uh, third question, how's the worship? And he looked at David Gunger when he said it. And David's like, ah, and I'm like, no, it's great. It's, it's like world class. It's amazing. Um, but it got us like a little, like, it was a little disorienting, a little backpedaling, and then I was like, wait, but this is in our imagination about what is church and what makes church strong and good and successful. When it comes to church, I, I had an early sort of coming of age experience in, uh, in, in a mega church. Uh, I was a young adult pastor. We had a midweek gathering. It was like thousands of midweek, uh, of midweek people, of adults would come together. And, uh, and I was inheriting this thing. And I was asking the, the, the leader of it, the founder of it, like, how, how did you get this going? Like, what's the secret sauce here? And what I heard altered the trajectory of my life. It altered the trajectory of my career. And it had such a visceral sort of uh, strike in my soul that I was like, I was disgusted. I never heard it, heard it put so boldly. What was the secret sauce? And he looked at me and he said, butts in the seat, hot girls at the door. And I just was disgusted. And I thought, I began to think, how much of all this is social engineering? 
Like, I'm a leader. I, can, I know how to lead and how to create and how to do things. Like, I can do that. But what is real? Like, what's actually happening in this community as a result of how we're organizing and what we're doing? And I've always wrestled at, at the core of who I am with that question from that day on. I said, whatever the answer is to the future of the church, whatever the answer is to the future of spirituality, it can't be that. And I notice that churches often take one of two directions when it comes to um, how we think about spirituality. And they both treat us as brains on a stick. One is didactic, focused on teaching and communication and the word. And the other is sentimental, creating a mood, creating a vibe that, uh, that fosters good feelings, that fosters uh, good emotion and a strong emotional response. Now, I'm not against either of these. I, I love sentimentality to an extent, right? I mean, it, if it, it, I don't want an insulin shot after, but like, I do like to feel my feelings. Um, I also love teaching. I love, I mean, I've been preaching like crazy long sermons, which is not characteristic. So if you've been visiting our community, don't worry about it. It's not, it's not a thing. It's just, it's just a, a season of, of our, our church's life. Um, but these are the two sort of like angles I, I see most churches that I've experienced and I'm aware of in the U.S. especially taking when it comes to spiritual formation. If you're didactic, then you're like Calvin, the early reformer who said, what should, what's the ideal architecture for a church? By the way, this is a great space, isn't it? Not quite as nice as the school we were in, but um, Calvin said, what's the ideal worship space? It is four white walls and an open Bible. For Calvin, the centerpiece was the spoken word. It was the, the open Bible and the proclamation of a message. And we're biblical. We believe that. That's a distinctive of our community, but we think that's not the whole story. A 50-minute sermon that is the centerpiece of a thing, or a really finely honed 20-minute TED Talk-esque style sermon is not the point of the gathering. I have a friend who worked with one of the greatest preachers probably of, of the modern era, someone who could hold a room and mesmerize it with storytelling and charisma, and on some Sundays would walk in and say, we're axing this whole thing. My, my sermon's going to take the whole service. And he could hold the room. But at the end of that experience, through, you know, the spoken word can do many things. It can shift a lot around in us. It can get us thinking in different directions. But it has a limit. Information will not change us alone. Right? Information, because we are not brains on a stick. And then when we treat each other like brains on a stick, our transformation is stunted. Our own growth is stunted. I think we're seeing that in the American church as a whole. When we treat people like brains on a stick, we are stunting our growth and our transformation. But the sentimental route is equally true. Um, the Jesus movement in the 70s, when uh, sort of hippies came to faith and sort of had a new expression of faith, uh, Jesus was on the cover of Time magazine, and all of a sudden there was this new question about what is this emerging spirituality? And guitars were introduced to worship for the first time. Like we've had organs and pianos and choirs, and now all of a sudden this folk instrument is introducing this, this sacred music into the common experience. And listen, we don't hate on that. We love that, man. We, we are benefactors of that tradition. We have a drum kit in a chapel, for crying out loud, and we have strings, yes, but we have two guitars, David Gunger, nice. And we, we are benefactors of that. But it did create 
a force within the Protestant movement of, of, of a focus, of a uh, focus on an experience, an encounter with God through a certain style of music. And to the point where people couldn't really connect with God apart from that style or that genre. It had an addictive sort of capacity. I was uh, in, a, in a big worship conference once where uh, I was with my brother, who at the time, he was very cynical and skeptical of the whole thing. And I was like, trying to be apologetic toward it, like, hey, like, give it the benefit of the doubt. There's like, look at the people. They're so excited and enthusiastic. And there was one point in the gathering where, uh, you know, you had all these people worshiping God. There were lights and uh, beautiful people on the stage and uh, lots of great technology being put to use and people singing their guts out. And my brother looks over at me at one point and just does this. And when he did that, everyone got up and put their hands up in the air. And there was this huge movement in the crowd. Now, what was his point? His point was predictable. You can create this. You can manipulate this. And of course, there's always pushback, which is like, well, we can create and manipulate anything. Right now, there's like light and sound and there's, I, my voice is amplified and we're creating an experience, right? His point was, it's, it's pretty heavy-handed. Like this, what if this is real? It's an honest question. And when it comes to the church's didactic or sentimental approach, I think both of them treat us like brains on a stick. You know why? Because we can podcast both experiences. I can walk around this city and listen to the best preaching that we've ever known. Well, I don't want to say that. The best preaching of our time. It's recorded. It's out there. You can podcast it. It'll probably be better than what you're hearing now. That's doable. That's accessible. But it's private. And it's not embodied. It's just coming straight into the brain through the ear, which is an embodied thing, acknowledged, but it's aimed at the head. The other thing is worship music. You can listen to the best worship music. It doesn't matter what, what your favorite worship music is. Name it. You can listen to it. You can buy the album. You can get it. You can enjoy it. It's private, and it's the best money can buy. And they're both podcastable experiences. To be sacramentalist, to ask the question, what can we do together that we can't do by ourselves? How can we be shaped when we come together in ways that transcend just a message into the brain or music into the ears? It's to transcend the ears and the voice and to say there are other portals in the body through which the love of God and the power of God and the presence of God enter in and shape our lives, alter our stories. And the question of all this is, is it changing us? Is it transforming us? Now, I get to my second point here, which is, what is the answer to the split? The split is addressed through the sacramental worldview. And it's because it, it sort of throws together. It throws together two things. That's what symbol means, by the way. The, the word for symbol is meaning to throw together. And we're, we're, we're addressing these splits of body and spirit, of matter and, and, uh, and invisible. We're taking things that have been pulled apart and we're bringing them back together. That's what the sacramental outlook is all about. Sacrament literally means sacred mystery. We think when we come together and we experience proper sacraments and when we look at the world through a sacramental lens, that there is something powerful happening. There is a powerful coming together. 
that's being experienced. Now, what is a sacrament? There are three things I want to draw your attention to on a sacrament. A sacrament is physical. It's, it's tactile. You touch it. You can taste it. You can smell it. It engages your senses. It's physical. But it's also symbolic, uh, meaning it's pointing to something else. It's pointing to something beyond it. It has a reference point beyond what you're actually experiencing. If I show you a photograph of my kids, which don't worry, I'm not. But if I did, I would show you a, a picture and I would say, this is my son, Jack. Or I'd say, this is my daughter, Lucy. And none of you would contest it. You'd know exactly, you'd be like, yep. But it's not. None of you would be like, that's, that's, a, that's a piece of paper with ink on it. Be like, no, this is, this is Jack. You get the point. Now, obviously, that breaks down when it comes to the sacraments to an extent. I mean, we pass through a, a, a traffic intersection. We see a green light or a red light, and those express something to us. They are symbols. They're bringing together an invisible law or rule in our actual experience through the symbol of the light. And that's because it's inescapable. We are embodied human beings, and we need physical, tactile things to point us to something more meaningful, or more profound. There's no other way to experience the profound or the meaningful. And so, it's physical, it's symbolic. You know what else it is? It's communal. You can't podcast a sacrament. You can't podcast the Lord's Supper. You can't podcast baptism. These are moments that are physical, they are symbolic, and they're done together. They're communal. They connect us to each other. Again, addressing the splits. And a sacramental imagination starts with these particular moments. Coming to this table. Going to that water. And it doesn't say, you know what? God is here and not anywhere else. Or God is in the water and not anywhere else. Like anything in the Christian story, we start with the particular and it takes us to the universal. When we come to this table, we say, this is holy. This is sacred. We're experiencing the presence of God when we eat this bread and when we drink this cup. And you know what that does? It leads us to the sacredness of everything else in our world. In the Protestant imagination, we often start with a deficit. We say, God's not here. Blessing's not here. Anointing's not here. We need to get that here. And there are different ways, and depending on the tradition you come from, that get God here in this absence. It could be more prayer be a certain kind of worship or a certain intensity of worship. It could be a certain kind of music or a certain intelligence in speaking and preaching. But whatever the hoop is that you jump through to get God here, to get God's presence here, the Protestant imagination starts with deficit. But the sacramental imagination starts with a radical assumption that God is radically present everywhere, at all times, at all moments. That God is more intimately connected with every physical thing in this world than we could possibly imagine. But we just don't have eyes to see it. We don't have ears to hear it. And so the, the, the spiritual life and the spiritual vision and the path and the story isn't to get God in here because God's not here. It's to open our eyes and to open our hearts to see what is really here. It's Mending the split. It's embodying the brain. It's creating other portals than whatever we can take in with our AirPods. 
that get into our, our imagination and help us love the things that are worth loving. Now, our story is rooted in creation, and, and that's the foundation of sacrament. God made the world and said, this is good. And of course, our story doesn't end there. It ends with an unraveling, and, and we see all these fissures and splits, and the whole story of redemption is to bring these things back together, to heal and to repair what's torn apart. And there's a string of physical signs. I'm not going to go all into this, but like in the Hebrew Bible, you have tabernacles and temples. You have Passover meals. You have commandments etched in stone. You have bushes that burn. You have uh, bloody carcasses smoking on altars. You have garments that are stained through cultic use. And all of these physical things are signs. They point us to the transcendent. They point us to what's beyond what we can see and experience with our senses. And that leads me to the last point, which is, for us, Christ is our sacrament. Christ is the foundation of a sacramental perspective. In Christ, you have the wedding of divine and human. In Christ, you have the wedding of the immaterial and the material, or in his own language, the wedding of heaven and earth. In Christ, and through what we call the incarnation, we have this union that becomes the foundation of everything that we search for and attend to in our lives. And the difference is, with Christ, we start and it expands. We don't say, Christ, here's where God is and here's where God's at work and God's not at work anywhere else. Christ would always point us the other direction. Even the story of Christ assumes God's at work elsewhere and all over. The story of the Magi from the East, you know, practicing some other tradition, some other way, comes into contact with Jesus, recognizing the sacredness and the beauty and the power of that moment through their own tradition. And our own gospel tells us that. The only story of Christ teaches our sensibilities on that point. Christ is a sacrament, and Christ gave us two specific sacraments to practice. This table and those waters in the back. Baptism and the Lord's Supper. Now, different traditions have added others to it, but all of us agree these two are primal. And Jesus said, when you do these things, I'm with you. When Jesus, Jesus commanded us to do these things and taught us to do these things because they nourish a kind of way of seeing and being in the world that heals what's torn apart. These aren't uh, bonuses. I used to grow up in church, and I thought this was the point. Get the message right and understand it and agree with it, and then you've done your job. All this stuff is like, uh, it's, it's like the flowery periphery, you know? It's like a bonus. And what we're here to say is, this is the center. This table is the center. Those waters are at the center of what it means to be a part of this community and to nourish this imagination. Words are important. The Bible is important. Our tradition is important. All of the spoken word pieces are important. But this is the staple. This is the constant. This gets in our bones. And so I'd like to end with a phrase that's from my friend uh, Chris Green, who's also a theologian. He says this about the expansiveness of these, the table and the water. He says, we have the Eucharist so that we can learn that any meal may be holy and that any body may be Christ. I'm going to say that again. We have the Eucharist so that we can learn that any meal may be holy and any body can be Christ.
This is the mystery of Jesus saying, listen, if you've visited the sick or the prisoner or if you've clothed the naked, you've done it to me. Because to come and reverence the body of Christ, ultimately, if we connect the dots, gets us to reverence everybody. If we come and we reverence the body of Christ, it doesn't create a little tribe that's just exclusive and, and a, a new form of in and out. It creates what Dr. King called the beloved community, where you have this vibrant, powerful force at the heart of the community saying, no, 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 it's not about here. It's about it all. And we won't rest until the beloved community touches all, until God's blessing touches all, until God is recognized and, and seen in all. And that's the vision of Revelation. Our own story ends with this powerful image. I'll leave this with you. In the very end of our story, when we imagine the future of redemption, everything made right, everything made new, everything healed, what image do we have? The book of Revelation says, in that world, there's no temple. No temple. And we see a progression leading up to this. I mean, the Israelites had a temple, a sense of like God's presence and connecting through it in a physical way. But then there's like this progression in the Christian tradition where people start to imagine it differently. And they say, you know what? We are temples. We, every one of us, are temples of God. Like we house the presence of God to the point in Revelation where it says there's no need for a temple. Because God, why? God's glory fills the earth. And poetically, they, they, they talk of a scene of no need for sun, no need for moon, because the glory of God fills the earth. When we come to this table, we often recite the story, uh, the, the voice of Isaiah, when he talks about the angels. And the angels declare, holy, holy, holy uh, Lord, God of power and might, heaven and earth are filled with your glory. Hosanna in the highest. And it's that prophetic vision it's the vision of John the seer who imagines a world where the glory of God fills it that is the sacramental imagination. We come to this table not because that's the only place that's spiritual. We come to this table because everything is spiritual. And this table reminds us of that and catalyzes that worldview. And to me, that's one of the, the beauties of being a sacramental community. Our bodies matter. Our world matters. Our planet matters. Everything that's physical in our life matters because it's connected to God and it's made by God and it's good. And we need to heal these splits. We need to mend that which is broken in order to become whole. And that's what Christian spirituality is at its heart. And as a community, we invite you to that sacramental imagination, to nourish it, to grow in it. And as a community, we'll, we'll wrestle with it, we'll push back, we'll debate, great. But this is sort of one of the distinctives of our community. And so I leave you with that. Let's pray. God, we thank you for your love and for this community and for what it means to be sacramental, to have these sacred mysteries that point us to things beyond. And we pray that you would continue to foster our imaginations for the good of our neighbors so that we could embody the love of Christ in the here and now and do so with more and more skill and more and more meaning. May we be good news for this world. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Thank you for listening to the Trinity Grace Church podcast. Trinity Grace is an interdenominational church centered around the life and teachings of Jesus Christ. 
Our church is theologically rooted in the Apostles and Nicene creeds, but we welcome people of any or no religious backgrounds to participate in our community. If you'd like to support us, please text TGC Downtown to 77977. That's TGC Downtown to 77977. Or visit our website, tgcdowntown.com. Thank you for listening. May the Lord bless you and keep you. May God's face shine upon you. And may you be filled with peace, hope, and love. <laughs>